Good afternoon and welcome to a sunny afternoon, at least here in Melbourne. Hopefully the grey skies and rain are a thing of the past, but who knows what's in store for anyone these days with climate change. On the program today, I'm speaking with the President of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, Tammy Jonas. Tammy is a farmer in the central highlands of Victoria and agroecologist in practice, principle and philosophy, as well as undertaking a PhD. Associate Professor Gavin Mudd at RMIT University in the Department of Environmental Engineering will be looking at three issues associated with the Ranger Uranium Mine in Northern Territory. One, the clean-up and rehabilitation. Two, the voting of a proposal to open another mine to pay for the above. And three, the impact of this mine has had on the traditional owners, the Mirau people. Dr Alison Bronowski, AM, former diplomat, author and academic and president of the Australians for War Powers Reform, responding to the announcement that there is to be an inquiry into Australia's war powers. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan assessing the promises of more money and resources to Pacific Island nations to counter the perceived threat of China in the Pacific, and that's money supposed to be coming from the United States. But let's not forget Mr Kevin Healy. He's had a week and he's like to share it. And don't forget, you can be listening to this program in many ways. You can be listening on the old analogue, 3CR, 855am, on digital, 3CR. And if you go to the webpage, 3cr.org.au, you'll find how to stream it for a week and have a podcast sent to your computer or your phone. So do keep listening. And here he is, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, as the government assures us, it will keep its promise to hand out tax cuts to the filthy rich, economists pointed out that by the time the cuts come in, there will be lots more filthy rich in that tax bracket, and so the cost of the public purse will be even greater, necessitating, we assume, savings in far less important responsibilities like essential services. And as the reserve losses bank ups the interest rate yet again, reassuring words from the great true blue Aussie Jerry Harvey Sting Profits of the ubiquitous ads, who told us, There's a lot of evidence out there that things are not as bad as we are led to believe. Our sales are good, so they're not reflecting anything like a recession or anything like that. Good old Jerry. Great to know he's making a killing. Although he did qualify with, but who knows what transpires next year. Presumably getting that in just in case his workers were thinking of asking for a pay rise from his, our sales are good bit. Interesting that, notice every time a caring employer, a great corporate, announces huge profits and exciting new, huge handouts for shareholders, it it also points out, headwinds is their favourite word of warning, points out there are clouds on the economic horizon and therefore a wage rise is not warranted. And anyway, what have the workers done to deserve a raise? Well, other than making all that money for them. 
Sadly for Jerry, headwinds, economic clouds are forming in his sea of profits as the corporate regulator has charged him with misleading advertising. As if, poor Jerry, shame regulator, shame. After all, when half of every newspaper and hours of exciting telly are Jerry's advertising, little mistakes, unintentional mistakes, could creep in. Not that we'd use the word creep when it comes to Jerry, but little mistakes like promoting no deposit and interest-free payments, forgetting to point out it necessitates obtaining a pay-lots-later-tued financial services credit card involving establishment and service fees, converting the advertised 60-month interest-free payment into a $537 fee over and above the purchase price. A simple little oversight anyone could make. Anyway, poor Jerry and Paylot's latitude have been charged and the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review accompanying photo of always smiling, laughing, happy, happy Jerry is the first time I've seen a photo of Jerry not smiling and laughing or always coming up with brilliant ideas on how we and the public purse can all help him make even more lovely, lovely money, becoming even more filthy rich, and for once he was unavailable for comment. Mention Jerry making a killing, new big True Blue Aussie train killer, Lieutenant G General Simon Stewart of War, and what a beautiful and commendable art it is. And stew art, well it is an art that stews so many people and places. Leading us to new big train killer Simon says the threat of nuclear war in Ukraine shows how the good guys world must join together in condemnation. And with that I had this perfidious thought. Wouldn't the whole problem go away if all the nuclear war is peace lots abided by the UN of the US of the UN of the world's banning of nuclear weapons? Instigated by the true blue Aussie, indeed, Melbourne-conceived Nobel Peace Prize-winning ICANN, one of its key figures, a former presenter of the Stick Together program on this station, but the nuclear warriors have refused to join the massive nations that have signed up, the refused nicks, including, of course, True Blue Aussie, refusing because we might upset our master, the US of the UN of the US of the world. But anyway, Simon Stewart of War, why not advocate we all get together and sign the protocol, abolish all nuclear weapons, problem solved. Oh dear, told you it was a perfidious thought. On that, a Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline this week that we might suggest means something more sinister than the sub-editor intended, as the US of scrambles with a diplomatic campaign across the Pacific to counter perceived evil China doing the same, same thing. The headline, US of opens its arms to Pacific Island nations. Exactly, an arms race. To see the massive social benefits of tax cuts for the filthy rich, those drops of yellow liquid piss, oh sorry, trickling down to all of us, we need look no further than our mother country and the massive success of massive tax cuts for the filthy rich by new big supremo Liz Trust the Markets and Chancellor of the very exchequer Kwani Kwa Teng, which managed to send the economy spiralling into a black hole. And as Liz declared there was no problem and she wouldn't back down, Kwani declared there was a problem and he 
And back at her press conference, Liz said, Oops, sorry, there is a problem, and we're backing down, but only because the markets are stupid and don't know what's good for them. And Kwani and she would persevere with the three things they know are what is required. Growth, growth, and growth. And so to pay for the tax cuts for the filthy rich from which they backed down, they would have to cut social welfare for the poorest of the poor, so that the poorest of the poor would be better off when the growth, growth, growth kicked in. Although the poorest of the poor, in their ignorance, saw kick in a different and very selfish, unpatriotic context. Essendon Footy Club's big year took another positive turn as it appointed former Nab Your Money Bank Supremo Andrew Thor Burned as its new Supreme... Oops, hang on, sorry. It's now unappointed Andrew, who did last about three and a half hours, give or take, as he favoured one religion over another religion, showing Thor Burned he might be in this terrestrial life, but he will never burn in the fires of hell which we can be sure he believes in, along with knowing abortion and homosexuality are sins which you, which land you in the fires of. Indeed, medical facilities that perform abortions are the modern-day concentration camps, and poor Andrew also got burned at the Nab Your Money Bank as the financial services Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission found that under his spiritual guidance... The bank had nabbed people's money but provided absolutely no service whatever. In this case, all taken, no give. Although, in fairness, those who were dead didn't need any service anyway, so it was a bit unfair to criticise poor Andrew for that. Anyway, sadly, he was forced to resign, showing that while abortion and homosexuality are sins, ripping off customers is looked on blessedly by the dear baby Jesus. Oh, and on matters of ethics, Andrew chaired a committee appointed, among other things, to focus on the appointment of a new CEO and obviously found himself the best person for the job, the best person for three or so hours, give or take. But then the usual suspects, including Catholic Arch, bash up the pagans, Peter Save Solis, attacked Essendon and State Supreme the pejorative Dan, who's responsible for every wrong in the state for attacking freedom of religion. Uh, so, Peter, employers cannot take action if there is a clash between their principles and someone's religious beliefs. Absolutely not. That is a blatant attack on freedom of religion. Uh, but, but you support a religious freedom bill that allows religions to discriminate on the grounds of their beliefs, their right not to employ people who don't agree with their religious beliefs. Absolutely, to deny us that, that right would be a blatant attack on freedom of religion. On one level, of course, Andrew's Nab Your Money experience made him ideal for the job. Nab lots and lots of members' money and on the field provide them with nothing in return. Sometimes we feel they don't need to spend lots of money on surveys when we could have told them the result for nothing. Like an RMIT survey this week of caring employers, which concluded that caring employers think young workers are overpaid. Doesn't that come like a bolt from the blue? And another survey would show that the researchers who undertook the survey were also overpaid. 
obviously overpaid, then 26-year-old young mother Yuen Duong, working at a St Albans grocery, Min Hung, two years ago, asked to mince some meat. In a mincer with no safety guard and, no surprise, hand caught, leading to a compassionate reaction from her caring employer, who told her to stop screaming she would frighten the customers. The fire brigade had to help ambulance workers and she was taken to hospital with her hand still in the mincer, losing four fingers and half a thumb on her right hand. The now 28-year-old telling the magistrate's court this week the understandable impact it has had on her life. Also in court this week, mob called Tarantino Investments fined after one of its trucks crashed out of control into a garbage truck, killing the garbage truck driver. An unsafe vehicle including parts held together with duct tape and cable ties. Finally, I raise these not at all funny items because the compassionate grocer was fined $20,000, the price of destroying the young woman's life, the unsafe truck company fined $35,000 for killing a worker, the price of his life, fined but without recording a conviction. But a small proportion of the crippling fines courts impose on the evil construction unions when they attempt to take action over safety issues, fined for trying to save workers from death and injury, showing how we're all equal before the law. Good afternoon. And you've been listening to Mr. Kevin Healy with This Week That Was. And don't forget that you can hear Kevin and the team tomorrow morning at 9am until 10 o'clock with City Limits. In the lead-up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community-controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday 14th of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fund communities, not prisons and police. Friday 14 October, 4pm, Parliament Steps. Homes Not Prisons is a 3CR supporter. Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10 a.m. on 3CR Community Radio, 855 a.m. on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate and what we can do about it all. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. 
when you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. I'm joined by Tammy Jonas, President of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance a farmer in the Central Highlands of Victoria and editor of, co-author of Farming, Democracy and Radically Reforming the Food System from the Ground Up, published in 2019. Tammy, can I take you back to when your passion for food justice in all its forms took hold? What was happening in your life and the world around you? Yeah, it's sort of hard to pick the starting points, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, you know, I came from a conventional cattle ranch in Oregon when I was a kid, uh, and then I've been in Australia since 92. But I've been an activist sort of, you know, for, well, you know, we're sort of born activists, some of us, and I've been that way since I was young. Melbourne with my husband, we knew we wanted to be back on the land. Yeah, so we, we knew we wanted to be on land, and we weren't quite sure what the pathway would be. Having been a vegetarian for a decade myself because I hated how animals were treated in industrial production systems, we decided ultimately that we would come and and raise pigs because they're one of the worst treated in industrial agriculture. And so it kind of starts with this, this deep concern about how we're raising animals for food and then that expanded into understanding the loss of biodiversity in agriculture, the loss of biodiversity in our soils. Um, until I got involved in the food sovereignty movement and uh, have not looked back. It's really expanded my view of, of how complicated the food and agriculture systems are and what simple solutions there actually can be if we return to a world of, of more small-scale farming. Well, let's talk about the, the sovereignty, the Australian food sovereignty movement. What did you know about that when you first joined it? And Do you know how long it's been going and and what are the aims of this organisation? Yeah, so food sovereignty in Australia is really only about 12 years old um, as a movement. The Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance was formed in 2010 by some activists who were familiar with the global movement that's been really active since the mid-90s. And the, the aims of food sovereignty are for to ensure that everybody has the right to access nutritious and culturally appropriate food that's produced and distributed in ethical and ecologically sound ways, and also that we have the right to democratically participate in our food and agriculture systems, you know, to decide what will be grown, how we will be grown, and um, what we will feed ourselves and our families. And so I, I came into that movement a couple of years after those activists had started out, very quickly got very involved because of my my passion for all things to do with food systems and for people to have the right to eat nutritious food um, that is produced in ways that they're comfortable supporting. You know, having been somebody who rejected industrial meat, for example, for so long, 
I really wanted everyone to have options to not have to participate in cruelty just to eat. So since then, I mean, the movement here has grown enormously. We're very involved in the international movement as an organization. And and then we also support small-scale farmers, but also allies who are working on other food systems kind of solutions, you know, whether it's community gardens or food hubs, food swaps, anything that is about bringing control of the food system back into the hands of local communities, really. And I don't think many of us think too much about our food, and yet it's just about totally out of our control what we eat and where that food comes from, isn't it? Because of the, the capitalist industrial farming methods that have taken over food in most countries, or maybe not most countries, but many countries in the world. Yeah, I mean, in particular in the Global North countries, or, or what a lot of people call the minority world, because we need to remind ourselves that those of us in the highly industrialized countries are the minority of the world's population. And the, the majority of the world in the global south, in fact, typically have better access to locally grown food grown by their, their own local communities. So we are, we're unusual in these, in these countries where that we grow massive monocrops and purposes of the GDP and one person's profit. And, and it hasn't been to the benefit of our, our local communities ourselves. So if you're in a, if you're in a city and you don't have a very, well, a commitment and, and capacity to pursue food grown by people with a face and a name, you're stuck with what's in the supermarket, and that can be very disempowering and also not very nutritious in many cases. So, yes, we are definitely disconnected from the food system thanks to the capitalist uh, industrial colonial system. So where does your anarchism come into all this? Well, you know, I kind of toyed with big state Marxism back in the day, <laughs> and I decided it wasn't really for me. I think I, I consider myself a, a social anarchist. I believe that we need structures and governance to help us all work effectively and, and fairly as a society. But I don't think that that means that government has to control every every aspect of our lives. I'm certainly not a, a libertarian. I don't think that we should all be left to ourselves individually to fight for what we want without caring for the social good. But I, I think we have uh, a long way to go to get our governments to understand how to actually prioritize local communities over um, things like the GDP. Or, you know, you look at every government program, it seems to promote export and tourism instead of feeding local communities and supporting local farms. You know, you look at the in Australia and America, you look at the increasing purchase of our of our farmland by either large corporations or, or even overseas corporations, and they're not protecting the interests of our of, of people in Australia very well at all. Um, I guess that's where the, the anarchism comes from. It says, well, then let's take some more matters into our own hands. Let's run a fair and just society within our local communities, and let's, let's advocate for a, a slightly lighter touch with government on things that things that are impeding us from building these fairer food systems, but a heavier touch when it comes to ensuring everyone has fair access to health care and education and, and yeah, nutritious food. And, of course, with the industrial farming methods that have been in place for quite a while now, we've got that terrible loss of biodiversity. 66% of the food that we eat comes from, like, nine crops globally. It's a huge risk to our food system, especially with the, with the increasing impacts of climate change and we need more locally adapted seeds and breeds, and we're, we're in fact genetic ranges uh, constantly because of industrial agriculture uh, playing that strong role in trying to make everything consistent and uniform. 
for their mostly for their processing facilities. So we have the COP15 on biodiversity. Is COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh will be in November, and then COP15 on biodiversity is its lesser known sort of cousin, and will be in Montreal for that uh, in December. Advocating around the new global biodiversity framework that's to replace the failed Aichi targets. You know, in the decade of the Aichi targets, we didn't meet a single one of the targets to protect and preserve biodiversity. And so a group of global activists have been working really hard to influence the development of the new global biodiversity framework to and to make sure that it includes agricultural biodiversity because there's a real problem in biodiversity discourse where people think that it's just about like just what happens in the shelter belts or what what happens, you know, in the zoo as opposed to what happens on the paddocks and what happens in the food that makes it into supermarkets or farmers markets for that matter. We need to expand our genetic resources, not narrow them. And of course that's not going to happen if we continue the way we are with the with the control of land, agricultural land where you've got a few major corporations who control the soil, the seeds the production right through. You do. And um, one of the things we find ourselves up against at these these UN meetings is that they have a they have a seat at the table. So like Syngenta, one of the biggest chemical producers in the world, next week in Rome. And again, there's you know, every time you put up a panel for farmers to share what they need in terms of genetic diversity in the seed space. You have Syngenta sitting on the same panel saying, well, we'll just do that for you, when in fact they're a major player in narrowing the genetic base. Um, and then you have members of the UPOV, which controls the like patenting of seed. You have them saying that, you know, you can't save and sow and sell seed as a, as a peasant or a smallholder if you've bought it from a commercial breeder, which is, you know, like 90% of the seed circulating in the world today. So that intellectual property control of seed is a, is a, you know, increasing, I think, global are doing everything they can around the world to preserve the local varieties. And you see that in Australia, smallholders who are growing heritage and backyarders for that matter, preserving heritage and heirloom seeds. And we need way more of that. Not big, you know, seed banks in Sweden where we protect everything in, in vaults. We need people growing them in their own backyards and small farms. And you'd agree that not enough attention is being paid to the the plunder of the seas for fisheries, and the, the fact now that they've got fish farms because they've denuded many places in the world. Now they've got fish farms, and, and they don't do much good for the fish or anyone. No, the the fish farms are what, they're the again the disaster. It's terrible. You see in the um, global governance spaces that they're promoting aquaculture or fish farming as a solution to the problems of overfishing in the you know wild fishery space and yet it's extraordinary if you try to t- take a, a metaphor and think of it as saying oh well we have a problem with um, growing enough cattle and sheep out on these paddocks so let's just grow more pigs and poultry in sheds to feed people which is what they've done on land and we've seen all of the devastating impacts of that concentration of effluence and the impact on the the health of not only the animals but the humans who work in those places and the communities that surround them and have to deal with that concentration of affluence and they're doing the exact same thing in the seas and it's it's you know overly neutrifying huge swaths of sea down around Tasmania it's infamous right now for it you know with the growth move to let some of that fish farming go into the commonwealth waters there was just a, an inquiry last year about that that we put in a 
submission arguing strongly against opening up more waters to intensive fisheries that are destroying those entire sea areas. So, yeah, the fishery space is, is pretty grim and, and it's harder for the public to understand, I think, because it's so invisible to us. You know, it's below the surface of the water and we can't see the constant devastation of our, of our waters that's happening. Well, as you said a moment ago, biodiverse friendly farming is, is increasing. Can you talk about your farm and how you apply those principles? Yeah, so at our farm here in the Central Highlands of Victoria on Jajawurrung country, we are growing large black heritage breed pigs and speckle cattle. And we also have um, garlic growing here, which we use. Uh, we have a, a pretty incredible composting system that my husband Stuart built. Uh, we call her Audrey. She's a rotating composting drum. And we, so we have a butcher shop here on the farm. So any surplus nutrient from that goes into Audrey and creates an incredible uh, compost for us to grow more plants here. We also grow our own vegetables, all stuff from um, heritage variety from, that we either get from locals or uh, from diggers. Everything we do here, we try to make a circular bioeconomy. So we don't want to create any externalities from our uh, endeavors. So everything that we produce here in terms of nutrient, if it doesn't go out as food, it's then uh, nutrient cycled back in to produce more food, basically. And our animals move, you know, every day or week, depending on the species and the time of year. And we're actually, our next our next vision is to build a an abattoir here on the farm. Any reliance on the capitalist industrial commodity chain, it'll be entirely in-house and we'll be able to also process for other farmers here locally and we hope to see a, a flourishing of that kind of local food economy infrastructure returning to our regions to, to see our kind of farming continue instead of being lost to all of the, you know, kind of centralization of control by the big capitalist uh, multinationals. How many local farmers are following your example? is littered with uh, wonderful small-scale farmers. We have about five who already use our butcher shop here on the farm. We are the butcher for them or with them. And since we started 11 years ago, we've seen probably, oh, I'd say there'd be another six or seven that have popped up just within 10 to 20 Ks of us doing similar sort of work. And there are more coming all the time. We have internships here with um, for like agroecology residentials. And so Young would-be farmers come and spend two or three months with us and learn, and quite a lot of them are leasing land from other local landowners to do their own farming enterprises, and we're just trying to grow those numbers all the time. So, and that's happening across Australia. I'll be at the, the Australian um, the Food Sovereignty Convergence in two weeks' time up in southern Queensland, and up there we'll have heaps of other small-scale farmers from across, in particular in this case the East Coast, who will be sharing what what activities they're doing and trying to learn from each other in a campesino or campesino model of you know skill sharing and knowledge sharing between farmers rather than looking for so-called experts and agronomists don't know anything about your country and then want to give you the same paid inputs to do everything. We're the opposite. We do everything ourselves and we share with everybody openly to try and build the movement. What connections do you have with the Indigenous peoples or the Indigenous peoples farming practices? So not so much with the farming practices per se. I mean, it's not like we're farming any indigenous foods here at Jonai, 
everything we grow is exotic. But what we share with the Jara, the traditional people of these lands and, and ongoing custodianship here, is the care for country and the desire to heal country. We also, we believe strongly in their nature, not separate from. And I think that in terms of shared farming practices or provisioning or foraging or any of the, the food provisioning practices of, of human societies, I think that notion of not considering humans separate from nature is the most important principle for all of us to follow. And it's really intrinsic to agroecology, which is what we subscribe to, the idea that you should be farming in common with nature as opposed to against her. And, you know, if you think of this, this land as your mother, it's going to have a very, you're going to have a very different relationship to it than if you think you're separate from it and you're here to be the manager. And I think you'll think twice before you make any sort of incisions in her skin, the land. And that's how we farm. We think of ourselves as part of this place. And any act that we take on this land is with her as a sentient being in her own right. Like you to talk now about another organisation that you're a member of, and that's La Via Campesina. Can you explain? Yeah, La Via Campesina is the global network of peasants, the global movement. Uh, over 200 million peasants globally are affiliated with La Via. And it started in the mid-90s as a um, basically a kind of peasant uprising against increasing corporate control of the food system and the and the land grabbing taking taking off across the global south and the loss of control of, the, of their food systems and markets for that as well. And so now it's a, it's a thriving global movement, 30 years old. We're celebrating 30 years, and it's organized in, in sort of regions as well as globally and has had, like, incredible successes. You know, it's because of La Via Campesina that we have the UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants and Other People Working in rural areas, which came in in 2018. So through their tireless advocacy for smallholders globally, you know, we've been able to hold some lines to make sure that smallholder food production, whether it's on land or in fisheries, and whether it's, you know, it can be packaged like in Mongolia or in Eastern Europe or Africa. So you've got the, you've got people working at every level of smallholders activities advocating for the continuation of these lifestyles that produce healthy food in common with nature for local communities as opposed to, you know, globalized commodity products, food-like products that are then shipped all over the world to nobody's benefit really except some shareholders. And I'd imagine that the people, the peasants in many countries are are faced with the the wrath, I'd suppose, of the, the multinationals who are not too happy at all about the way that they're running their, their farms or their plots and they'd like them to do the way they do it. Well, they wouldn't. it's not even that they'd like them to do it like they do it. They just want to take their land and they do take their land. So MST, which is the uh, Peasants Movement in Brazil, it's one of the biggest and strongest. They regularly uh, identify plots of land that have been sitting vacant. You know, they're basically land banked by big corporations. And they move in and have these occupations of that land and decide, oh, actually, we're ready to start using that again. And then they come and they forcibly evict the communities from from those lands. And that's, I mean, across, I think, Latin America and uh, Africa are two of the most egregious examples of large corporations doing 
genuine violence to smallholders and their attempts to grow food and feed their local communities. They definitely want the smallholders out of the way, and they, they definitely don't want us to be a political force that actually gains traction with government because they're used to controlling those holes of power, and they don't like being, being challenged. And which countries do you believe are doing the best to protect the peasants and their land? Uh, it's mostly going to be in Latin America. So Bolivia uh, is, a, is a shining example, and they have food sovereignty and the rights of peasants enshrined in their constitution. And they actually just recently, again, wrote an open letter to the, the UN Convention on Biodiversity who framed their discussions uh, around biodiversity with Mother Earth at the center. They don't want us talking about resources and resource extraction or exploitation. They want us talking about Mother Earth urgently to reframe how we think about biodiversity and our relationship with it. So Bolivia is always a shining example for me. And then Ecuador is also really forward about protecting its peasants and food sovereignty. There aren't very many other good examples, I'm not going to lie. There aren't very many other good examples. And, and small island states, actually, the Pacific, small island states in the Pacific, there are some of them who really try hard to support their smallholders and local communities in very challenging circumstances. Have you had the opportunity to travel to some of these countries to see how the people are working their, their land? I've been fortunate to travel to many countries, not sadly to the best examples like Bolivia and Ecuador. I would love to. I spend time in other meetings like in Rome with the activists from there and am inspired by their examples constantly. But no, unfortunately, most of my travels have taken me to places where they're not doing it as well, like South Africa or certainly a lot of the European countries or uh, even in Malaysia or Indonesia. And yet they have a fairly hostile government that also um, supports a lot of land grabbing by corporates. So, no, I mostly end up in quite complicated and, and conflicted spaces rather than the ones where we get to see what would be wonderful for everyone to have. Yet you are positive that we're on the right track? Well, you know, some of us are. <laughs> we're just trying to keep <laughs> that's being what really I mean. noisy about it and helping. Yeah, that's right. So I, I do think... Um, the movements are just getting stronger and stronger. I'm very pleased to report. And we just had actually historical meetings in Penang just two weeks ago. Climate justice organizations, biodiversity and food sovereignty organizations for the first time to collectivize our efforts to agitate in the, in the two COP spaces, in the Climate COP and the Biodiversity COP, and to share what our strategies are and start making sure that our our messaging and language is, is the same so that, for example, when the big corporates are pushing for what's called nature-based solutions, which sounds lovely, right? But don't we want all solutions to be nature-based? But it's actually large biodiversity offsets, which are nonsense. You know, net zero losses, as we know, are, are nonsense. And we won't actually stop the um, warming happening if we only stick with such low ambitions. And so the climate and biodiversity and food sovereignty people got together and we started working on shared language for our campaigns and we'll be continuing to meet more frequently as a, as a whole kind of global collective rather than being siloed off into climate and biodiversity and food sovereignty in the coming years. So that gives me a lot of hope for the strength of our movements and the, and the progress that we're making. Well, finally, Tammy, most of us don't have the opportunity to have a a farm, either a small farm, but we do have 
a backyard or a front yard, or even if we're living in a flat or an apartment, there's often a, there's a balcony where you can grow your own food. And that's so important, isn't it, for people living in cities, particularly here in Australia? It absolutely is. And honestly, I mean, the simplest one that anyone can do is herbs in your kitchen window. And I, I mean, even when we go camping, I take pots of herbs with us in the truck, you know, like so that I can have fresh herbs while we're, while we're away. Uh, because little things that will turn people's um, understanding of like an intellectual understanding of we need fresh and local food into a deeply visceral one of, my word, thyme fresh from the plant is so much nicer. Giving yourself those those kind of paste entrances into why this matters and what part you can play in, in having access to this kind of food. It can start as simply as with some herbs in a pot on your windowsill. And just the satisfaction of watching a plant grow. Oh, totally. And even if it's just in a little pot, your fingers in soil, you know, biophilia, the, the love of life. That is a real thing that gives you a feedback loop. When you put your hands in soil, you genuinely get endorphins back. So it's good for you to enjoy watching a plant grow and putting your hand in that little bit of soil. It certainly does. And I've been speaking to Tammy Jonas. She's an agroecologist in practice, principle and philosophy. She's undertaking a PhD at the University of Western Australia on the biodiverse and decolonising practices of agroecology farmers and investigating logistical, financial, social and legislative barriers to their efforts. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop. Take a breath. For you are drunk. And we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20.
It's expensive, dirty and dangerous, and in the minds of many, should be left in the ground. But there's money to be made, sometimes big money. And the uranium mine in Kakadu National Park is no exception, a mine which the Mirror traditional owners have opposed for decades. And today those same traditional owners say they are appalled by a suggestion of a second uranium mine could be established on the edge of the Kakadu National Park, 275 k's east of Darwin. And we all remember the eighth-month blockade of the first mining plans in 1998, a blockade which involved thousands of protesters. Today the issue is the clean-up of the Ranger Mine, the cost and the rehabilitation of the site and the suggestion of a second uranium mine. I spoke with Associate Professor Gavin Mudd in the Department of Environmental Engineering at RMIT University. Gavin, I see there are three issues, the clean-up and rehab of the mine, Second, the floating of a proposal to open another mine to help pay for it. And third, the impact of that mine on the Aboriginal people in the region. But first, we have to acknowledge that most mines anywhere in the world leave with an environmental mess, with clean-up, rehab, less than desirable for those most affected. But I would imagine that uranium mines are on a different scale, is that correct? Well, uranium mining certainly has more complexity than a, than a typical mine, but uh, and that's largely due to the fact that it's the radioactive nature of the, the tailings and the, the material involved. So put that on uh, Indigenous land surrounded by a World Heritage Area, upstream of uh, internationally important wetlands, then you not only just have to do a standard job on rehab, you have to do the, the absolute best of the best. And that's certainly what's been promised at Ranger and that's what we're all concerned and uh, we want to achieve. Can I take you back to previous uranium mines in Australia and, and the success or otherwise of those clean-ups? The Mary Kathleen Uranium Mine won a, uh, an Engineering Excellence Award in the 1980s because its rehabilitation was considered to be you know, the best of the best at the time. And uh, you come back you know, 20 years later and some of the problems that were said to never going to be a problem uh, actually have become a problem. Things like acid mine drainage, there's greater seepage coming out of the uh, rehabilitated tailings dam than, um, than was predicted, like much, much greater. And there's also been uptake of uh, heavy metals and radionuclides into grasses above the tailings dam as well. Like, so it's coming through the cover material and getting into the vegetation. And that wasn't supposed to happen. So certainly Mary Kathleen is not the sort of poster child that it's uh, often claimed to be. The Narbalek uranium mine, you know, nearly uh, 40 odd years after it's closed, is still not um, properly rehabilitated. So we've still got issues around uh, revegetation, concerns around erosion and exposure of underlying radioactive material. So Narbalek is certainly not a great example. And then you look at Rum Jungle, now Australia's first large uh, uranium mine. It was rehabilitated in the 1980s and within 10 years it was shown to have failed. So um, we're now going to have to spend several hundred uh, million dollars more on the next round of rehabilitation there to try and get it right. Isn't money supposed to be put aside in some sense for a clean-up after, for after when a mine finishes? The way that mining works is there's normally a bond and that's sort of, in theory, calculated on the, the cost of rehabilitation uh, and that's set aside. Now, 
in different states, it, it may be 100% of that estimated cost and it may be a fraction. But what we find is that that estimated cost is always too low. And so we, we always find that, uh, especially in uranium mines, the actual cost is much, much greater than that bond. And that's certainly the situation we're uh, finding now with, with Ranger is that there was about six, seven hundred million dollars you know, over the years until recently. And now they've estimated that it's actually going to cost the total cost is probably going to be you know, something closer to two billion dollars, including money that's already been spent. So we have a funding problem there at Ranger and that's a, that's a real issue. And so it, and this is, I think, a much more systemic issue right across the mining industry. It's something that we see not only in uranium mining, but right across the mining industry. And then we have the fact that it's in or nearby National Park. Yeah, well, the um, standards that we, we should be seeing for a site like Ranger, as I was saying, like they have to be not only just the best of the best, but it has to be the absolutely best of the best. It's surrounded by a World Heritage Area. It's legally required to be good enough to be incorporated into that World Heritage Area at some point in the future. We don't know exactly when. We don't know the process. We don't know what criteria would be used to do that except that it has to be the same as the surrounding World Heritage Area. That is a context of which no uranium mine, in fact, no mine in the world has ever had to achieve with respect to rehabilitation. So it's very much unprecedented sort of uh, expectations for Ranger, but that's what the industry promised. That's what the Australian government promised. And so that's certainly what legitimately the traditional owners, the Miracle Jakey, the environmental community and the Australian and international community have always expected because that's what's always been promised. And what happens to, uh, I suppose, the, the stuff that's left behind? Where does it go to from a uranium mine? With Ranger, the tailings have been placed back in the pit, so there was an above-ground tailings dam that stored all the tailings during operations. And so that's now in the process. That's actually been finished and then put, put back at the, the bottom of the, the two open-cut mines there. And then you've got all the other rock, low-grade ore and waste rock that's then being put back on, on top of all of that to basically completely backfill each pit. So the first pit, or, or pit one as it's called, uh, that has now been completely backfilled and uh, uncovered uh, and revegetation um, has begun on that. So pit three, they're um, working through. They've still got to uh, finish uh, dismantling the mill and then also putting all the, all the rock and everything else back on, but that's going to take some years. And so at the moment we have a, a problem where there's a, they're expected to um, have that all finished by January 2026, they're not going to finish by then. The earliest they're going to finish by is 2028. So we need to get the Atomic Energy Act changed very, very quickly so we can sort that problem out and make sure that there is enough time to do the job properly rather than just rush it. Is there permanent damage to the river or the rivers? Permanent damage? No. I mean, there's certainly concerns around water quality, and that's something that's a, a perennial concern. But, uh, yeah, certainly there's no change to the flow regime or anything else like that. It mainly revolves around concerns around water quality, uh, things like that. What do you make of the what's going on between ERA and Rio at the moment, Re, um, the funding, and we'll have to open another mine to pay for it? Is this really true, what they're saying, or is it sort of a bit of a smokescreen? No, it's an absolutely fundamental difference of opinion, I guess. You've got uh, ERA is, a, is an independent company, so it has to make decisions on its own. Now, as an independent company, it's about 89.6% owned by Rio Tinto. But when you're looking at it, they have no revenue coming in and they've got probably at least a billion dollars short so of uh, funding. So ERA is trying to work out how they can get that funding. Rio is saying, well, we don't think it's worth our money putting that in. But 
they've always said they will make sure the job is finished at Ranger. So I'm not quite sure why Rio is saying why there is this sort of disagreement over funding. And so ERA is saying, well, look, if Rio is not going to give us the funding, we'll have to open up Jabaluka. All right, now, that has always been vehemently opposed by traditional owners for many decades. That's the problem at the moment, is we don't have certainty over funding. So ERA is trying to work out how to do that. And it's, um, I think it's regrettable that that's what they believe is their option, rather than uh, getting Rio to the table and saying, right, let's work out how to get the funding uh, set up and uh, get the job finished. What are the legal obligations for these companies to do a proper clean-up? Well, they're legally required to do the, the proper and full clean-up. How they fund it is a, is a big issue. And if they don't have the funding at the moment, that's a, that's a huge concern. That needs to be sorted out. And so Rio could afford to do it without even missing a drop of water in its balance sheet. ERA, of course, doesn't have the money. So it's got to find out where it can, you know, it's got to solve this problem. And so we need resolution on this. I think that we can say that they're legally required, but if the money's not there, then that's kind of irrelevant. We need to make sure the money's there with certainty so that the job can be finished properly. It's not an issue where the government can step in and put the money in, surely? Well, the Australian government could do that. It's authorised under the Atomic Energy Act, which is a federal piece of legislation. But again, why should taxpayers pay for companies uh, not coughing up the money? I think in many ways, the first port of call should be the companies. And so I think at the moment, we've got a situation where you've certainly got Rio. They're, they're not a small mining company by any stretch. So there's no shortage of potential ways to solve this problem without having to force taxpayers to subsidise poor outcomes by the mining industry. Well, let's look at a, a few recent accidents or happenings with Rio. They haven't got a very good track record, have they? Oh, Rio's got a, a, a pretty big, uh, I suppose, uh, historical record of all sorts of things, whether you're looking at Bougainville, whether you're looking at uh, Duke and Gorge more recently and so on. So I think there's, there's certainly issues there, but I think... Duke and Gorge is certainly focused, you know, upper management in Rio to say they really need to make sure they're, they're much better at addressing Indigenous concerns and, and, and acting upon them genuinely. And, I, and I've, I've certainly seen that myself. And that's not to downplay the, the significance of Duke and Gorge because what happened there was absolutely horrific. But it has at least forced Rio to acknowledge that they've got to get a lot better again. Um, so definitely. And what is very important is or has been and would be if the, if the open Jabaluka is the impact on the Aboriginal people, particularly the Mirar people. And there's been a lot of accidents there. People have got very bad health problems. How do you see that? Well, the, the biggest impact for Jabaluka would definitely be the social impact. Mirar have always opposed that. They've always argued that Jabaluka area is a very important sacred site complex you know, to their culture. So any mining there would be a fundamental you know, fundamentally offensive to that culture. That's absolutely, first and foremost, one of the big big problems. Now, and then you're looking at the sort of social impacts more broadly. You've got issues where, whether it's development and other things there, it hasn't delivered the sort of expectations that, um, or promises that were made to the Aboriginal communities. So and I think that's sort of, you know, another issue that has to sort of be resolved. So now then you've got environmental risks and so on as well. But certainly, I think for me, the, the biggest issues with uh, any sort of, you know, attempt to, to rethink about opening Chabaluka would certainly be all the social impacts and especially the impacts on the, the sacred site complex. And you see stories of bad health issues with the Aboriginal people still first, cancer rates much higher than the surrounding areas? Beyond my expertise, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. Well, what's the next step that should be taken, Gavin? Well, I think the next step is we need to get certainty over funding Rio has already affirmed that they, they respect the um, opposition to Jabaluka, so that's good for Rio. 
But we need certainty on funding and we need certainty on the changes to the Atomic Energy Act so that we have the time to get the job done properly, not a rush job by 2026. I think there's certainly some of the, the most immediate steps that need to happen so that we can all uh, actually then get on with making sure the rehab is actually done properly and to the high standard that's always been promised. Can you explain a bit more about the Act? The Atomic Energy Act was put in place in the 1950s to allow the Commonwealth Government to mine uranium in the Northern Territory for military purposes. Uh, and it was the act that was used to authorise Rum Jungle. And so Rum Jungle was operated by a, basically a, a subsidiary company of what is now Rio Tinto many, many years ago. Back then it was a subsidiary of Consolidated Zinc, which became part of CRA and then Rio. And so when you're looking at it, it was basically an act that said, we can mine uranium for military purposes. And the uranium from Rum Jungle was exported to the nuclear weapons programs in the 1950s and the 1960s. Then Australia had a small stockpile left over, which we eventually sold in the 1990s. But fundamentally, the Atomic Energy Act was used to authorise Ranger in the late 70s. Despite the advice, the explicit advice of the Fox Inquiry not to do that, but, of course, the Whitlam government had already signed two different agreements, actually, with the, the mining company at the time, or the joint venture at the time, one of which said, we'll use the Atomic Energy Act. So the Fraser government still went ahead and authorised Ranger using the Atomic Energy Act. And so that's what we often call the, the statutory fiction. It's, you've got a private company mining uranium you know, for profit, but using a piece of you know, very obscure legislation in some ways, but a piece of legislation that is effectively Cold War military power. So that's the sort of the, the basics of the Atomic Energy Act. But, but because the authorisation of Ranger is the Atomic Energy Act, any changes to Ranger's authorisation therefore need changes to the Act, which has to go through Parliament. Sitting before Parliament at the moment, there's a inquiry being called, and I think that's due to report back in uh, uh, mid to late November. It's an unfortunate delay. It should have been able to be recognised and voted on pretty quickly, I would have thought, but hopefully get the inquiry uh, very soon and then things can move, those changes can be made and that, give, that will give the range of uranium mine much more time to do all of the complex rehabilitation work, get it done properly to the high standard and then work out how we set up long-term monitoring after that, which will have to be for many, many, many decades in, into the future. So hopefully the Atomic Energy Act will be amended uh, properly in that way with no uh, surprises or anything like that. So, can just get on with making sure Ranger is done properly. And Gavin Mudd is Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Engineering at RMIT University. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterised by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
charity or community group looking for office space or a co-working space, Ross House has rooms of different sizes available, from 15 metres squared to 100 metres squared at affordable prices. Many charity groups already call Ross House home, so if you're interested in joining a vibrant community or working towards social justice and environmental sustainability, please visit rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. A decade in the making, an inquiry into how Australia goes to war. That relates to an announcement on the 30th September of a parliamentary inquiry into Australia's war powers. I'm speaking with Dr Alison Ronoski, AM, former diplomat, author and academic, and for today's interview, the President of Australians for War Powers Reform. Alison, before we look at what the inquiry will entail, we need to ask the question, why is it necessary? And what do you see as wrong as how Australia goes to war? The system we've already got has delivered us a series of disastrous wars, arguably illegal, 
which were never put before any kind of democratic process and which were decided upon, and in each case, by the Prime Minister of the day. And sometimes in collaboration with his executive committee cabinet colleagues, and sometimes not. And all of them were done at the instigation of the United States. So all the Prime Minister of Australia has to do, and this is perfectly legal under the Constitution, dispatch the troops and off they go. There is one little caveat to that, and that is that the Prime Minister is supposed to inform the Governor-General, who is Commander-in-Chief of the forces. Ever since Vietnam, that has not happened. They haven't been to the Governor-General even. The Governor-General could delay the process slightly by asking for more information, for asking for more advice. The Governor-General could do to make the process a little bit better considered. But that's the main reason why we need this to change. And that system of having a Governor-General who is Commander-in-Chief sort of in nominal oversight of the whole process goes way back to the royal prerogative of kings that we inherited from Britain. We don't need that. Australia ought to make its own independent or independently of any system that operates in any other country. And certainly uh, we ought to do it independently of whatever our American allies may want us to do. Well, you've got Canada in the, and New Zealand with that same background. What's their system? It's the same. They've got the same sort of constitution. Their constitution says the same thing. The only difference is that both of them, who was their prime minister of the day, whether the prime minister was conservative or a progressive, have gone along with certain wars, like, for instance, Canada sent troops to Syria. New Zealand, when lent upon by Tony Abbott, sent a token force to, um, I can't remember whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan, but very little. Please remember that Canada and New Zealand both sit alongside a larger country which could notionally be their guarantor if there was a defence crisis. And Australia would be New Zealand's protector in that case, and Canada would be protected by the United States. So neither of them feels the sense of threat that some Australian leaders do. Well, what countries then do have the right sort of system? Almost all of the modern democracies. France, it remains the prerogative of the president, but it would be a very political decision and something the president would have to take a lot of care to get support for. All of the other modern democracies, constitution that require either a democratic process in the parliament or there's something in the constitution that says, specifies what the process is. And in every case, there's more involvement of politicians in, in it than we have. Furthermore, in some cases, like for instance Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, they have a provision by which if there's a war, not only does it have to pass through the stages during the war, Parliament has to receive information on the process of the war and the progress of the war, and if they don't like it, they can call it off. Australia ought to be no different from other modern democracies. The only thing is that our constitution has never been modernised in this respect. 
you maintain that this inquiry is a decade in the making, then why now? That's a question for the government. But going back, Labor has twice promised such an inquiry when they were in opposition, 22. They said in the first term of a Labor government, the government would set up an inquiry into how Australia goes to war, to inquire basically into whether the war powers should be changed. Because they've now done it, and, and I must say we got to the point of doubting that they were going to, when they did it, we couldn't believe it. And we were a little bit hesitant to be sure that it's going to get us to where we want to be. Because apart from anything else, the subcommittee that's going to consider this is stacked with all sorts of opinion, a lot of which is either ignorant or doesn't understand or doesn't um, favour the kind of reform that we're talking about. And the two AOP members who are behind this move have spoken with us and said, look, we need all the help we can get in rounding up public opinion behind this because we'll be forced to make compromises and so on. And that's where our worry arises because between this stage that we're at now and where we might get eventually which is a, a legislative change in the Defence Act, there are a lot of steps. It could fall over at the very first step, in our view, because if they are forced to make compromises and what they come, up, come back with is a recommendation to the Defence Committee of the Senate Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs Defence Trade, a, a recommendation that says uh, we want a debate sounds fine to most people, but it, because there are an awful lot of people in the parliament who say, oh, every such decision should, have, should be scrutinised by the, by the parliament. But scrutiny and debate are worth nothing unless there's a vote, because they can say, look, this is what we're going to do. You can say what you like about it. There, it's been debated. End of story. We're still going to do it. That's what we've got now except they don't usually bother to call for a debate. Well then, Alison, who chose the members of this committee? I don't know that answer to that. There's a quota for how many from the opposition, how many members can be chosen from the opposition, how many have to be from the upper house, how many from the lower house, and so on. And the interesting thing about the choices that have been made is that there is not one single green in the, in the subcommittee. There is not one independent, even though there are greens and independents in the actual, uh, no, my wife, that greens, there's certainly an independent in the committee that we're talking about, but the subcommittee is the one that is doing the inquiry. And in the subcommittee, there's not one green, and daringly, not even Senator uh, Jordan Steele-John, who has twice put a bill before the Parliament. Will the proceedings of this committee be made public? They haven't said. The submissions are open until the 17th, I think it is, of November, and then there will be public hearings on the 9th of December. That's the date I've been told. It may go into more days than that, but I doubt it, because usually by then they're wrapping up. 
those are the two dates that I do know about. My guess is that the report, uh, if it follows previous inquiries of this kind that are held late in the year, will come back by about March next year. If it's March or April, that is quite a significant date. And here's my, my worry about that timing. In March, one is it's the finish of the 18-month consultation period over AUKUS. They said nothing's going to happen until we've had 18 months of consultation between Australia and the US and the UK about what exactly is proposed under AUKUS. So that comes out in March. Uh, another thing that comes out in March is the conclusion of the Defence Strategic Review, which is receiving public submissions now. That is due to report in March. And the other thing that happens in March is, would you believe, it's the 20th anniversary of our invasion of Iraq. So all of these things, if they coincide with the report of this uh, newly established subcommittee on war powers, and it might make it hard for the proponents of reform to get their message across. And that may be the intention. I don't know. What are you asking the public to do to try and make this committee a democratic one? If people out there think about it, I think they need to realise that the time for action is now, not when we are on the brink of a crisis. If there's a crisis, like if Australia is suddenly attacked, of course, there's no time for the kind of thing we're talking about. We would have to respond, and we would be within our rights legally in international law and under the UN Charter to respond. So that is not a problem. The real problem is to act now, make the legislative change I've talked about, so that when decisions for another war are made, we have already got a process in place that democratizes those decisions. And quite frankly, emergencies of the kind I just described are very rare. Planning for wars goes on for years. And quite frankly, it is in process now, Americans and with the Brits, about China. We know that they are. They have said so. The worry for us, they're not telling us enough for us to know when to expect it or anything like that, but something will be cooked up and we will then have to respond to it. And if we don't have the kinds of democratic processes for full uh, revelation and transparency, then we'll be caught on the back foot once again for another time. And this time, the war would be in our region. And this time, once again, we will lose it because there's no way that we and the Americans or anybody else can defeat China be defending its own sovereign territory, which includes Taiwan, by the way. It's a bit pessimistic, is it, to say that Australia might be attacked? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason that I mention an attack on Australia is that that's what everybody always says. Oh, what if we're attacked? What are we do then? We haven't got time for parliamentary debate. I just mentioned that, and every other constitution that I was talking about before has provision for that kind of emergency. As long as the emergency is genuine. Now, the United States puts in place states of emergency. They've got more than 30 of them still sitting on the books. 
Some of them are more than 30 years old. And that's because they declare them when it suits the president of the day to tell the Congress, oh, we've got an emergency, they believe them, commit the money, and there it sits. And it goes on feeding the military-industrial complex for decades. And this is the kind of thing that we don't want to happen. We don't want false emergencies. Uh, an example of another false emergency was when Theresa May was Prime Minister. She said that, that she wanted the British Air Force to join the French and the United States and bomb Syria over a chemical weapons attack which was staged, but she claimed that it was a crisis. She managed to convince the Commons they voted for it. She was able to do it. And in fact, the original plan was to do it in March 2018, and they did it in April. In other words, it wasn't an emergency at all, but they wanted an excuse to bomb Syria, and they did. Now, that kind of emergency that is a fake is the kind of thing that has been done many times. You'll remember the Gulf of Tonkin exercise, which is how the Americans got their own forces into Vietnam. Those sorts of stuff at any time. If there is an emergency, we need to make sure that it's absolutely genuine. And the best way to do that is to ventilate the facts in the parliament so that people can ask questions. The answers can be made public. They can vote and say if they feel it's for real or not. And if a majority feels it is, well, then off we go. And at least the democratic process will have been served how much support do you believe you've got in Parliament for your point of view? About half of the Labour members support our recommendations, um, some with reservations. How do we protect intelligence information? That kind of thing. Some of them have reservations, but not enough to make them opposed to it. That accounts for about half of Labour in the Parliament. Almost none of the uh, Liberal National Party favour it at all. We have one UAP member who has made a statement about it that I don't understand and can't work out what it means, and he is on the defence subcommittee that I was just talking about that is considering this thing. So God knows what he knows about it. As I said, there are no Greens, but all the Greens, uh, except one who has recently sort of changed her tune for some unknown reason. All the Greens are firmly in favour of what we're talking about. And of the independents, the ones who have been longest in Parliament are mainly in favour of it, like Andrew Wilkie, Charlie Stevel, and Helen Haynes with some reservations. Strangely enough, Bob Catter from a totally different party is favours what we're talking about, uh, largely because he believes in Australian independence. He wants Australia to have an independent foreign and defence policy, which um, many other Australians do. So though, that accounts for those. Of the new teal independents, we've talked to almost all of them. They all take it on board. They all understand it. And they all say, look, our main concern at this moment is accountability from the government and action on climate change, to which we say to them, look, these things are exactly what we implicitly are on about too. Because if there's one thing that is a huge polluter of the environment, does enormous damage to uh, global warming, it's war. War is one of the worst polluters 
that we have so far devised. That's one way in which we uh, have common ground. The other is they want better accountability from Parliament. Well, so do we. We want the democratic process used. And as I've pointed out to my sitting member, who is is um, a labor spender in Wentworth, she was saying how wonderful it was to be able at last to go into the House of Reps and vote for things or against things, according to what she decided. And I pointed out to her that there's one thing on which she will not be able to vote, a very critical issue on which she will have no vote at all, and that's how we go to war. We already know from our own public opinion polling that at least 83% of the Australians who've responded are in favour of the kind of war of reform that we're talking about. In other words, ordinary Australians get it more than some of our politicians do. The other thing is that IPAM, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, has recently completed a survey, an opinion survey, of any Australian who wanted to right into it. They've got hundreds of responses and all of them are in favour of the kind of uh, reform that I'm talking about. So there's a lot of public opinion out there that favours what we're talking about. So do many other groups, which I I won't run through because you know who they all are. So there's a lot of public opinion out there and the way that people who are concerned can maximise the effect of that is to go to their local member, as I've done several times, ask politely to sit down and talk to them about this matter, get themselves up to speed on the issues by looking at our website, warpowersreform.org.au, and simply saying to them that we are concerned. We could be at war without us having any say in it at all. It could be as bad as the last time and the last time and the last time, and why do we need it? Who in Australia wants to go to war with China, for goodness sake? Given that we will lose such a war, why do we want to do it? Have the conference instead and make peace with our neighbours and get on with, with countries in our part of the world, as Paul Keating said on Wednesday at the press club. Stop being told by the Americans or anybody else who our enemies are and who we should fight. That's what I suggest people out there can most usefully do. Oh, and of course, join Australians for War Powers Reform. Thank you so much, Alison. Always good to talk to you. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. It's contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Trivia's back, baby. Done by Law's legendary trivia night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Done By Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. And now to the Pacific with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. First, Nick, in its efforts to fend off China in the Pacific, the US has pledged $810 million for Pacific Island nations. It's only a pledge we must emphasise at the beginning. Nevertheless, $810 million is a great deal of money when you take into account the budgets and spending ability of many Pacific nations. Which are the lucky countries? The White House summit hosted by uh, U.S. President Joe Biden on, uh, at the end of September, you know, was engaged with the membership of the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, it was interesting that the original invitations went out for this summit didn't go to all forum members. Um, it just went to the 12 countries that are represented at the United Nations, uh, the independent sovereign states. But the forum includes a number of self-governing territories related to New Zealand, like the Cook Islands and Niue, and it also includes two French dependencies, uh, New Caledonia and French Polynesia, which are you know, still under colonial administration by France. So there was a lot of angry reaction from uh, the forum membership that the US was picking and choosing who they'd invite to this summit. Uh, there was extensive behind-the-scenes lobbying uh, in the lead-up to the forum, I, I spoke to uh, the President of the Federated States of Micronesia, Daniel Panuelo, David Panuelo, and um, he hosted a meeting in Hawaii uh, a month or so before the summit. And he said to me that, that Samoa and Niue and other countries had been lobbying very hard U.S. officials at that meeting to ensure that everyone got invited and that there was no divide and rule. And what was interesting was that the United States agreed, finally, to include all the island states of the forum as full participants in the summit. Australia and New Zealand were there with observer status along the side as the remaining forum members. And so you had the unprecedented situation where Cook Islands and Niue, which don't have diplomatic relations with the United States, and uh, President Mapu of New Caledonia, President Fritch of French Polynesia, we're all in the room, and uh, I must say, 
seeing the flag of Kanaki, uh, the independence movement flag uh, of New Caledonia, flying outside the White House for the group photo afterwards was a sight to behold. However, let's see where the U.S. Uh, pledges of funding end up um, because there's a long way to go before money actually hits the ground. Were journalists or others allowed into that meeting? There was a lot of photography and there was a press conference afterwards. Uh, so uh, it, it was a closed summit. Indeed, it was a couple of days of activities. There was a series of uh, meetings on the first day where forum leaders met with... Um, Firstly, uh, Anthony Blinken, who's the U.S. Secretary of State, to talk diplomacy. They met with the U.S. Commerce Secretary to talk about trade and economic opportunities. There was a meeting with military figures uh, to talk about what they called the maritime domain, um, issues around fisheries and illegal fishing and so on. And also John Kerry, who's the U.S. Special Envoy on Climate, um, had a, a meeting. And this was the central tension of the, um, the whole event, you know, the Pacific Island countries for a long time have been stressing that um, climate change is the biggest security threat that they face. Um, and famously, we've talked about this before on your program, in 2018 in Nauru, the forum issued uh, what they called the Boy Declaration, and that said that the, uh, the climate change was the greatest single threat to livelihoods, well-being and security of the Pacific climate change is the greatest single security threat. Now, the United States obviously sees China as the greatest security threat to the region, and we live in an era of US-China strategic competition, uh, marked by the AUKUS agreement, marked by uh, US military deployments in Australia and in bases across uh, the northern Pacific. So there's a differing perception. And the Biden administration has been willing to take on the agenda promoted by the Pacific around climate change, but I would argue that the U.S. bureaucracy and the U.S. military are still focused on what they perceive as the greatest strategic threat, the greatest security threat in the region, which is the People's Republic of China. And that's a, a real tension in um, the two documents that were released from uh, the, this meeting. The official joint communique, which is called the Declaration on U.S.-Pacific Partnership, um, is an 11-point statement of agreement, and it's pretty good, you know, in, in, on, on the surface. Uh, it talks about the, the importance of regionalism. It talks about the importance of action on climate change. Um, it says that the Pacific Islands Forum is the key regional organization, <laughs> which, given they didn't invite four of the members, <laughs> was an interesting uh, shift of, of statement. So it reflected a number of the talking points that the Pacific's advanced for their blue Pacific agenda, their oceans development climate agenda. At the same time, however, Washington released what they called the Pacific Partnership Strategy of the United States. This is a pretty unprecedented document where not just a broader Indo-Pacific strategy for the U.S., but a, a specific strategy targeted on the Pacific Islands. And while there's, you know, like all these uh, declarations and strategies and things, there's some good stuff in there, there's also, uh, you know, many highlights where China is seen as the key regional security driver. I mean, the, this uh, U.S. partnership strategy document, um, which is supposed to bind government policy, says that islands face pressure and economic coercion by the People's Republic of China and risks undermining the peace, prosperity and security of the region and by extension of the United States. So economic coercion, pressure from China is, is destabilizing 
the security of the region. And it was interesting that in the original draft of the first communique from the summit, um, there were references to China, but a number of island states, including uh, Solomon Islands and others, called for those to be removed, and they were from the joint communique. The U.S. statement, um, given it's a U.S. government policy document, really highlights a lot more this question of China. And did they all get invited to the, the dinner? Did they all get invited to the lunch? Yes, no, there was a major um, um, social event where President Biden hosted the leaders. Uh, and, you know, there's some fascinating photos that have gone viral. Um, there's a picture of President Joe Biden with um, Edward Fritsch, the president of French Polynesia, and Louis Mapu, uh, the president of New Caledonia. And Mapu is the first pro-independence Kanak leader of New Caledonia in nearly 40 years. Um, so as you can imagine, the Kanak independence movement in New Caledonia, this went viral on social media throughout New Caledonia and indeed caused a lot of um, uh, gripes from uh, conservative politicians. There's a leading anti-independence politician, a guy called Nicola Metzdorf in New Caledonia, and he represents New Caledonia in the French National Assembly. And in Paris, he uh, launched into this incredible questioning of the French foreign minister, claiming that, uh, and I quote, leaving these two communities of the Republic, the French Republic, alone with the United States, is at best a diplomatic fault at worst, an abandonment of sovereignty. Now, the French had given permission for Mapu and Fritz to go to, to Washington, but, uh, you know, they, they saw quite rightly that the Americans willing to deal with the French territories without President Macron being in the room um, was, was a, a bit of a diplomatic gesture. And uh, President Mapu, understandably, took the opportunity to put forward the agenda that the Kanak independence movement wants to. Um, he told the White House lunch, and everyone got to give a short speech, and he said that, quote, his country is opening a new page in its history since we are engaged with the French state in a process which, be, which has been called explicitly a decolonization process. So here's President Mapu in the White House talking about decolonization. If only people in the Australian Parliament would talk about decolonization. And people in the US territories have used this opportunity in the media to hammer home the point. Uh, the governor of, um, of Guam, uh, U.S. dependency in Micronesia, which is, you know, a third of the island is U.S. military bases targeted on China and North Korea and other places. Um, the governor of Guam said uh, that she'd like to join the forum. Um, I don't think that's going to happen because under U.S. law she's not eligible to join the forum, but she was making the political point that if French colonies could be hosted at the White House. Guam's political status as a, a dependency, a, a territory of the United States, should be up for public discussion as well. You're saying that the two leaders from French Polynesia had to get permission from France. Under New Caledonia's Numea Accord, foreign policy is divided, so New Caledonia was eligible to... Uh, sign treaties or engage in organisations within their own local sphere, but uh, the French government still controls key, uh, what they call competence régalienne, the sovereign powers, and that includes defence, policing, the courts, uh, foreign policy in most international aspects, and the currency. So here you have uh, Connect leaders in the White House talking about foreign policy issues, and the French understandably feel, hang on, that's our terrain. You can talk about local trade issues or engagement with health issues, areas that are within your division in the constitutional responsibilities. 
but we're still claiming New Caledonia as French territory. You know, it was a significant moment. Uh, similarly for the, the New Zealand dependencies, the Cook Islands and Niue, um, at the lunch, President Biden said, I'm proud to announce that uh, following appropriate consultations, we will recognise the Cook Islands and Niue as sovereign states. Um, up until now, uh, neither the Cooks nor Niue, which are self-governing, have their own Prime Minister and Premier, but, but aren't uh, uh, members of the UN, um, the US doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with the Cook Islands. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, as she was a decade ago, went to the Cooks for the Forum Leaders Meeting in 2012. But Niue and the Cooks have both been lobbying for the US to treat them seriously, and that would enable them to participate in a lot of the programs that were announced at this summit um, as the US tries to uh, compete with China in terms of providing funding around a whole range of areas, a shopping list of, of areas where funding was put on the table. I did read, Nick, that this $810 million is in addition to an expanded program over and above, and that's about $1.5 billion to support the Pacific Islands over the past 10 years. Where has all that money gone? Well, it's interesting. Like all of these things, the, you know, politicians make a lot of announceables. And um, as you say, there was a, a pledge of extra funding for the Pacific Island states to complement the $1.5 billion that has been spent over the last decade. Sounds impressive. The reality is, however, that that's pretty much very low. I mean, Australia alone spends more than a billion Australian dollars in the Pacific every year. So for the United States, claiming that it's the, you know, which is the biggest economy in the world, um, claiming that it spent $1.5 billion over the last decade is, is not even up to Australian standards. And Australia has, has been cutting its aid program since Tony Abbott's days. The other point of that is that the $1.5 billion over 10 years has been spent mostly in the three northern Micronesian states that are called freely associated states. These are the Republic of Palau, the Republic of Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia, all of which have a, a compact and agreement of free association with the United States that allows the U.S. to step in on foreign policy and defense issues. There are also military facilities across the northern Pacific, from Hawaii through Marshall Islands to Guam. Uh, the Marshall Islands, for example, hosts on Kwajalein Atoll a major U.S. nuclear missile testing range. So the U.S. fires uh, long-range ballistic missiles from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and they fly across the Pacific and splash down in uh, Kwajalein Atoll um, in the Central Pacific. So these Micronesian states are very important for U.S. security interests in the Northern Pacific, obviously directed against enemies like China and North Korea, and that's where the bulk of the funding has gone. The other thing about the, the new money that was put on the table... There's a bit of re-announcing going on. You know, the State Department put out a sort of 10-page fact sheet of all the areas that they're going to put money into, but it was really a shopping list where every agency basically found something that they could promise. And there was a bit of, uh, you know, spin, can we say. The $810 million, once again, sounds like a lot of money, but Vice President Kamala Harris uh, spoke in a virtual this, uh, virtual communication to the forum leaders meeting that I was at in Fiji in July, and she announced $600 million in fishery subsidies over the next 10 years. 
This is through the Tuna Treaty, which was signed between the Pacific Islands and America to stop the American fishing fleets plundering the Pacific, as they used to do in the 1980s. So while the Pacific has welcomed this increase in funding, $600 million. And when you look closer, $600 million is included in the $810 million. So Biden announces 810, but 600 million, that's already been announced. Once again, the numbers seem to shrink once you look at them. And I think forum leaders are pretty aware that there's a long gap between pledging money, the actual policy formulation and discussion with island countries about how it will be done, getting legislation through the Congress, getting the money into the US budget, and then getting action on the ground. And one of the big concerns is that all the pledges that are made, particularly a significant amount of money pledged for climate action, because to give them their due, the Biden administration is talking climate a lot more than their predecessor under Donald Trump. People in the Pacific are very aware that, you know, getting money through the U.S. Congress implemented on the ground is a long, long process. And they've seen before that American pledges aren't worth the paper they're written on. For example, President Barack Obama, you know, leading uh, his vice president Joe Biden back in the day, pledged $3 billion US towards the Green Climate Fund, global mechanism to fund climate adaptation and mitigation. And a number of Pacific countries have tapped this global funding mechanism to um, do action on climate change. But Biden and Obama only got a billion dollars out the door before Donald Trump was elected. And uh, the remaining two billion of their pledge, and that was like 20% of the Green Climate Fund's budget, never got paid because Donald Trump, as we know, withdrew from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, refused to give any money for climate action to the Green Climate Fund or through other mechanisms and so on. So for Joe Biden now, once again, to be pledging action on climate change just weeks, literally weeks before the November 8th midterm elections, congressional elections in the United States, Pacific leaders are saying, well, let's see the rubber on the road. Let's see whether the US Congress will fund not just the money for the Pentagon, for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, big military operations in the region, but also for climate action. And there's great concern that if the U.S. Democratic Party loses control of the House or the U.S. Senate, that there'll be great difficulty in getting climate money through the congressional approval. And even the $600 million that I mentioned from that Kamala Harris announced uh, last July for fisheries hasn't yet been approved by the U.S. Congress. Now, given the paranoia about China, the Republicans are probably willing to put some money out the door towards the Pacific, but what will they fund? Will they fund defence and military stuff? Will they fund climate action? The likelihood is that the climate stuff will be lower down the Republican agenda. And um, so, you know, like a lot of these things, there's a lot of talk. Uh, we've seen it in the global climate negotiations, but um, countries of uh, industrialised countries have failed to put the money on the table to deal with the climate challenge that faces the world. And uh, you only have to look at the pictures of what's happening in Pakistan, where a population of 33 million people, that's a population bigger than Australia, have been displaced um, out, of, out of Pakistan. So it's nearly a quarter of the population of Pakistan have been displaced by massive flooding. And the, the enormous resources to deal with loss and damage 
uh, are going to be part of the global climate negotiations this year in Egypt, it's, it's a long way to go. Nick, how do all these promises go with when they're trying to counter China? What has China put into the Pacific, to your knowledge? Well, China's been a significant donor um, across the region, particularly for infrastructure programs. China has been uh, putting a lot of money into things like wharf construction, roadworks. There's major programs for road building in a number of countries around the Pacific uh, through corporations like uh, the China Civil Engineering Corporation. There's uh, quite a bit of money that's gone into um, uh, sporting facilities and government offices, uh, parliamentary buildings, for example, in Vanuatu, big sports stadiums and sporting facilities in Solomon Islands, which will be used next year for the uh, South Pacific Games. So infrastructure has been a big component um, of, uh, of the funding. You know, that's been an interesting battle because Pacific Island countries have been urging China, in fact, to shift some of their funding towards uh, climate action. It's like Australia. A lot of money that goes into uh, uh, developing countries, be it in the Pacific or elsewhere, um, it's money paid by the state, but it benefits companies or state-owned enterprises um, uh, for their operations. So we see Australian taxpayers, for example, have funded Telstra to buy out Digicel, um, which is selling up some of its operations in the Pacific Islands um, to keep Chinese corporation Huawei out. Similarly, China subsidised its state-owned enterprises to do things, and a lot of that came under the Belt and Road Initiative over the last decade. What we're seeing actually at the moment is a slowdown in this sort of investment, partly because um, Belt and Road has evolved into a new global development initiative. You don't, the Chinese don't talk about BRI as much as they did a decade ago. And similarly, China's got enormous economic problems. Um, you only have to look at the, the energy and environmental crisis facing China at the moment. Um, we're like most of the Northern Hemisphere. You know, the drought in China, uh, the Yangtze River, the water flows of have, have dropped away and that's incredible impacts on agriculture and things like that. So China's got a lot of problems at home and they're not pumping out as much money as they did some years ago. You know, and the Pacific lobbying has had an effect. Um, just last year, China opened a China Pacific Island Countries Climate Center um, in Shandong province because there's a lot of pressure from the Pacific not just to do, you know, mechanic, you know, large infrastructure like roads and ports and things but to actually address their greatest security threat. So there's pressure from the Pacific, both on China and the United States, firstly to direct funding in an appropriate way, but more importantly to reduce their emissions because China and the United States and then the European Union are the largest emitters, both historically and for China, um, contemporary. And that affects the Pacific regardless of, uh, of their diplomatic roles. So you could say that this competition between the US and China is a win-win for the Pacific? Well, at a certain level, Pacific countries have been very clear to leverage this. And, you know, the very fact that this White House summit was held is a sign about US paranoia over the um, increasing influence of China in the region compared to, you know, 30 years ago. China has been around as a development partner in the Pacific for a long, long time, and China's been doing some nefarious things for a long time. I remember writing an article, you know, 25 years ago about China giving military aid to the Fiji military, 
you know, around the time of the 2000 coup. So there's, you know, China's activities in the region are not new, but it's certainly been ramped up over the last 10 or 20 years. And the Americans have, you know, are, are literally scrabbling to pull together responses to that. And I think, as I say, the, you know, people need to unpack behind the rhetoric about whether the Americans are capable of delivering because both Pacific governments and Pacific communities are looking and seeing this sort of pledge. So, you know, the, there's a whole shopping list of things that the Americans announced at this summit, you know, sending Peace Corps volunteers to a number of countries, establishing embassies in Solomon Islands, Tonga, Kiribati. Solomon Islands and Kiribati being two countries that in 2019 swapped towards China from Taiwan. You know, a lot of, lot of pledges. They've announced uh, um, a special envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum, a woman named Frankie Reed, who's uh, um, African-American, uh, former ambassador for the United States in Fiji. So there's a lot of activity. You know, the Americans are quite concerned about this. But many Pacific leaders um, have seen this before. President Bush announced similar initiatives back in, in 2000 including the establishment of a joint commercial commission to promote trade with the Pacific. It never really took off. Hillary Clinton, as I said, a decade ago, came to the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Summit in Rarotonga in 2012, made a whole lot of promises. Nothing much happened. This time, I think, uh, recent tours by the Chinese Foreign Minister, uh, Wang Yi, and uh, uh, particularly the Solomon Islands-China security deal, has spooked um, Western officials in in Washington, in Australia, in New Zealand, and you see that manifested in all sorts of ways, most notably with the AUKUS partnership announced in September last year. The US uh, has initiated a new uh, network called Partners for a Blue Pacific. They pinched the name Blue Pacific from the forum, um, and they're talking about aid coordination initially with Australia, uh, Japan, United Kingdom, New Zealand. Now a couple of other countries like Canada and Germany are slowly coming into that network, notably not the European and France. And this manifests, you know, a lot of this is driven by uh, state interests and it's not about the Pacific agenda. Um, We see that at the moment, for example, with ongoing strategic tensions between France and the United States over um, arms sales, for example. Um, You have a situation where the Australian Defence Force bought a number of... uh, uh, European from Airbus, uh, the MRH-90 uh, helicopters, which have been used by the Australian Defence Force for some time. Uh, Airbus is a subsidiary of uh, e- EADS, which is French EU uh, arms manufacturing uh, corporation, giant uh, corporation. And uh, the American firm Lockheed Martin is trying to sell Blackhawk helicopters manufactured by their subsidiary Sikorsky to the Australian Defence Force. So you see competition for arms sales going on in the Indo-Pacific region um, between the Europeans and uh, the Americans, forgetting about you know China in all of this. And that competition is playing out in all sorts of domains. And what's interesting is that while AUKUS is um, highlighted nuclear submarines, where the French you know nuclear submarine project with Naval Group got ditched. And uh, there's competition as to whether Australia will buy uh, British or American nuclear submarines. But AUKUS is about much more than that. It's about cybersecurity. It's about technology transfer. It's about artificial intelligence. And these are all areas of intercapitalist competition between
between European firms, US firms, British firms, now that Britain is out of the EU after Brexit. So even though there's attempts to cobble together politically and militarily containment of China, there's still competition between uh, capitalist enterprises in the Northern Hemisphere. And that's playing out very much in the Pacific. And uh, Pacific countries are trying to leverage their weight in that situation, but they are very small players in a much bigger field that's been dubbed the Indo-Pacific. Well, just finally, Nick, it's all very well for leaders to have all their chats and their dinners and their lunches in the White House, but how does this impact on the people, the grassroots people in these Pacific countries? Look, there's, there's real attempts to leverage this geopolitical moment for the benefit of ordinary people by governments. Whether it works is, is tricky. But, you know, one of the, the big um, things are coming together to try and leverage this moment of geopolitical contribution to their best advantage. You know, Dame Meg Taylor, who was the former Secretary General of the Forum, retired uh, last year, um, has spoken out and written an article for Islands Business. It's published in the Islands Business website where she says, while all nations in the Pacific share an interest in promoting a safe, peaceful and prosperous region, the independent Pacific states do not necessarily share the same geostrategic perspectives as the large, powerful economies of the industrialised West. So they want to advance their own geostrategic policies. And you have countries like Vanuatu and Fiji that are formally non-aligned who are using this moment to make the point that they want to engage with everyone. So this year, over the last uh, six to nine months, Frank Bainimarama of Fiji, for example, has hosted visits by U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, the Japanese Foreign Minister Hayashi, the New Zealand Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta, Australia's own Penny Wong, and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Earlier this year in May, Fiji joined a new Biden administration initiative called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is basically a new anti-China attempt to rally uh, countries around a, a US-led economic framework. But then he soon, just weeks after, he went to the BRICS summit. BRICS is the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Uh, it's developing nations, and that meeting was hosted by Xi Jinping. So here we've got Fiji saying, we're happy to go to the White House. We're happy to engage in US economic um led initiatives if that benefits people in Fiji, but we're also happy to talk to the Chinese and other countries, other new developing nations that want to engage in South-South diplomacy. And the real challenge is that Pacific leaders can talk the talk with their counterparts on the global stage, but Pacific churches, community leaders and others are engaged in ensuring that that translates on the ground to benefit. And one of the concerns is that a lot of these declarations and pledges take enormous lengthy time to get to the to the bottom but you know there have been some real success stories in uh, recent years one of them is for example that the pacific countries um, have uh, enormously increased revenues and royalties from um, deep water fishing nations that want to come and take tuna out of pacific waters and so Pacific, uh, you know, governments have been leveraging fisheries revenues and royalties and increased it tenfold um, over the last decade or more. And that's where this pledge from the Americans that they'll increase the amount of money they pay 
through the uh, Tuna Treaty um, will ultimately benefit governments in that they'll have revenue to spend on health and education and welfare and things that, the, that all citizens require. But there's a long gap between these White House pledges and action on the ground. And uh, as you say, ordinary people want to see results, not just promises. That's where I think we have to watch what happens with the American midterm elections to see where um, a lot of the Biden administration is just hot air or whether they can actually deliver by getting legislation through the Congress and uh, action on the ground. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jan. As always, look forward to speaking again. And Nick McClellan is an independent journalist and researcher. And if you'd like to see some more of Nick's work, he writes for Islands Business. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.